This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Fawn Weaver entered an oversaturated market. She had no experience. It's a highly regulated industry, and she knew nothing about all the strict rules and regulations. Yet, she became a wild success. Now, as will be clear in a few seconds, Fawn Weaver is very smart and driven. She's very bold. She's all the things an entrepreneur should be. But today's show is really about the power of a great story. And Fawn Weaver had a really great story, although she saw something in this story that nobody else did. After all, she learned about it in an article in The New York Times. The title was Jack Daniels Embraces a Secret Ingredient, Help from a Slave. Absolutely dropped my jaw. And the reason why it was so fascinating to me is as an African-American, I know that there were so many of my ancestors who were behind many of the major brands that we know today, whether it be through a patent that they were not able to patent or a trademark that they would have otherwise had but could not or an idea or anything. And so this story that was saying there was an African-American at the beginning of this brand that is known around the world, I thought that was fascinating. And with that story, Fawn Weaver built Uncle Nearest, a premium whiskey brand meant to honor the first African-American master distiller, the man who perfected the Lincoln County, Tennessee whiskey process, which turns out to be a very big deal, and the teacher to Jack Daniel, Nathan Nearest Green. That, and she refused to play by the rules. This is The Passion Economy. I'm Adam Davidson. And on this show, of course, we talk to fascinating entrepreneurs and break down their stories, try and learn from them and their mistakes so that we can apply them in our business and our lives. The thing about the American alcohol industry is it's sort of unlike any other business. Prohibition, obviously, outlawed almost all sales of alcohol. And when it was repealed with the 21st Amendment, it wasn't just freed up, like, oh, go ahead, sell all the alcohol you want. We have this incredibly complex mix of laws, both federal laws, and then each state has their own often quite different alcohol sales laws. All of that gives enormous power to this 
type of business called the wholesale alcohol distributor. I try not to get political on this show, and this is about as political as I'll get. It is crazy that we invest so much power in the wholesale alcohol distributors, and they use that power. They use that power to control entry into the market. It's really hard in America to launch a new alcohol brand. But Fawn Weaver figured it out. So let's learn from her. Let's figure out how she did it. Let's start with her background. Fawn is from Pasadena, California. My folks both were authors. My father was one of the original hit makers from Motown. So he was in Los Angeles and Barry Gordy brought him to Motown when he was starting it in Detroit. And then after the Detroit riots, then he asked my dad and a couple of the other guys to go back to Los Angeles and to open up Motown Los Angeles because they were going to need to shut down the Detroit one. What did your mom do? Author. An author. What did she write? She wrote books on marriage and books on relationships. So what you've done is, I mean, it's in the creative space, but it feels like a bit of a departure from your folks. Oh, it's a big departure. And both of my folks were teetotalers. I think that's a testament to her parents' parenting skills. No one ever made her feel like she couldn't do anything. Quite the opposite. She never felt like anything was beyond her, which is why... I started my first business when I was 18 years old and PR special events, and I did a very interesting thing. I had about 10 employees before I was 19. Not a good strategy, I got to tell you. But it was great because I'm learning from the very beginning the importance of team and how to actually build a business based on a team and making sure that you hire people that are actually better than you, that are smarter than you, that are more creative than you in certain areas. And and so all of that foundation of what I do today began then, but it began through a series of mistakes. Can you tell us one or two big mistakes you made? Oh, God. Well, hiring too many people too fast was one. And I would say the second big mistake is not knowing how to motivate people by influence versus I am your boss. This is what you need to do. And really now I'm almost the opposite is I am always looking for incoming information versus before it was always outgoing. And I think that that destroyed my first business. And I think one of the other big, big lessons is do the research, really focusing on people that have been in the same space and failed and why versus those who have been in the space and have succeeded. That is something we all end up doing, right? When we're going into a particular space, we can point to all the people who have succeeded in that space. But for a lot of entrepreneurs, they can't point to any that have failed or if they can, what caused them to fail? And so in my first couple of businesses, I did not do that. I didn't understand that. So it became a much bigger focus of businesses later and my investments later. And it served me well for that. She went on to invest in restaurants, real estate. She also, no big deal, somehow found time to write books. She's a New York Times best-selling author. It wasn't anything that I intended to do. I would write as I learned lessons. 
And I would just write and it would always come out in the form of a manuscript for whatever reason. But they were lessons to myself. They were almost books to myself. And then when I had a girlfriend who would have an issue with something, I'd go, oh, God, I remember that. I wrote a book about that. I'll send it to you. And I would literally, that's how I would share the lessons that I learned with people. And there was this one particular one uh, called the argument-free marriage that every single time there was a couple that was arguing and a girlfriend would come to me and talk about it, I'd say, you should read this. I remember this. You should read this. And that particular one, everyone kept coming back to me and going, there is no way you can't publish this. So she goes to a publisher, gets a book deal for two books. That manuscript she wrote for her friends and another book, Happy Wives Club. And that hobby for writing, it's what led to Uncle Nearest. Remember, she reads Clay Risen's New York Times article about Jack Daniel learning how to make whiskey from a slave. And Fawn was so moved by this story. She felt like it was important for everyone to understand that this completely iconic American drink was actually produced by a slave, an African-American slave. It gets her gears turning. For me, it was an interesting story, and I wasn't looking at it as much as for a business as I was, this could be a really, really interesting story. However, being a business person, I don't begin working on anything, and I mean anything, unless I can secure all online real estate and if I can secure the trademarks. And I learned this lesson because when I put out Happy Wives Club, it grew to this mass following of, I think, 1.2 million club members and all the rest of the stuff. Then I go to trademark it and I can't because there was someone that had something that was similar in name, completely different otherwise, but similar in name in the trademark office said no. So after that point, if I can't have all of the online real estate, the trademarks for everything. I won't touch the story. And so one of the first things I did was dive into it. Has anyone trademarked this? Has anyone secured the online real estate? And since no one had, I grabbed everything. And once I had grabbed everything, then it was, all right, this I can dive into. Like nearestgreen.com? Everything. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And once that was in place, then I could really go and dive into the story and see Is there a book and is there a movie that is interesting enough, is captivating enough to keep my attention, let alone other people? And so I decided for my 40th birthday, I would go down to Lynchburg, Tennessee, and I would interview the person who was in the New York Times article. The relative. The relative. And then I would see what else was down there and if this was a story that could be as exciting as I thought. And I got down there and what was there was just absolutely magical. And there was no question by day two that I would be writing the story and that I would be looking at optioning that story into a movie pretty quickly. So you go to Lynchburg. Yes. First, it's going to be four days. Yes. Then what happens? On my first day there, I meet one of, uh, who is now Jack Daniels' eldest descendant. Now, this was not a planned meeting, and it wasn't even supposed to be a friendly one. The thing is, Lynchburg is a small town, and word got out. So I go to the library, my husband and I, because it's my 40th birthday, poor guy, he had to be with me through this whole, you know, four days of research. And we're in the library, and 
and I share with the assistant librarian why we were there, what we were researching. And she gets really excited about it. And she says, I remember that story. I posted on my Facebook page. It was so cool. And and so she does all this different stuff. And, but then as she's looking, she can't find anything about Nearest in the whole library either. And so she calls her director and the director leads her to one little book by a Baptist church binder, if you will, their history. And but the director then calls Jack's eldest descendant, who then comes to the library. So when she arrived, of course, she was there to find out what's going on, because everything in the press up until that point was very negative. So if you have an African-American author from Los Angeles showing up at the library to do research, your thought process that there would be anything other than they want to rip your family apart, right? So I understood and recognized the moment I saw her and she introduced herself by title as who she was. And the moment she said it, I could see in her eyes a legitimate concern. And that's when I said to her, I'm not here to harm your family. And maybe it seems like that was a promise Fawn couldn't keep. After all, wasn't this story kind of a tragedy? A slave who perfected the Lincoln County process, one of the most famous and popular ways to make whiskey, only for a white man to profit off it, for Jack Daniel's family to profit off it for generations to come. But Fawn wasn't sure that was the story. To a certain extent, that is an easier story to tell. But after Fawn read the Clay Risen story in The Times, she did something no one else seemed to do. She bought Jack Daniel's biography. I'm reading it, and very early into the book, you read about Nearest, Nearest's son Eli, and Nearest's son George. And the thing that I found fascinating is the reporter, who was white, would write about Nearest in the exact same level of respect as he would write about Jack. Uncle Jack and Uncle Nearest. And when you're when you're talking about a book written in 1967, height of the civil rights era, so you got Detroit riots happening, right? We we're talking about that earlier uh, with my dad up in Motown. You've got that going on at the same time that this book is being written about the most famous white whiskey maker that America has ever seen. And the inclusion of Nearest and his boys made it clear to me that those who were around Jack knew their importance to Jack. And so when I came to Lynchburg, I didn't come because I thought the story was Jack had stolen something or Nearest had been hidden or anything like that. I came because I read Jack's book and I wanted to know, well, what happened to the story? Because it clearly was alive when Jack was here and it clearly was alive when his descendants were running the distillery. So what happened? And so I said, so I actually think that the story is a positive one. I think it's one of the good ones. And from that moment, she says, well, then I want to help you. And she did. While we were in the library that day, before she left, she let me know that the farm where most of Jack Daniel's legacy, the book, his biography, the farm where most of that takes place, It is where he's taught how to make whiskey by nearest. It is where he lived, where he grew up from the time he was about eight years old. That farm was for sale. And so she says, you should buy it. (laughs) And I did. So I went for four days and never left. Yep. Another descendant of Jack Daniels, a real estate agent, shows Fawn and her husband the old farm. And Fawn decides this is their new home. 
and so begins a long research project into the life of Nearest Green. Nearest Green, from what we know, was born somewhere around 1820 in Maryland. And we have no idea how he ends up in Lynchburg, Tennessee. But somewhere around the mid-1800s, we find him on a farm by a preacher and a distiller by the name of Dan Call. He's owned by Dan Call? Not owned. So Dan Call, on record, did not own any slaves. And which, ironically, was not that uncommon. There were a lot of people who would rent slaves. So they did not have to pay the taxes on it, but they would pay, you know, call it $50 a year, and they would rent a slave from someone else. So we're pretty sure I know who the slave owner is, but I don't have original bill of sale, so I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty sure I know who it was. Okay, so nearest born sometime around 1820 Maryland. Mm-hmm. Then he yep. shows up mid-1800s. In, in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And the preacher and distiller Dan Call is where he lived on that farm, that at the time 338-acre property. And he ran the still site there. There was a young kid that showed up about eight years old And that kid was Jack Daniel. Jack was the 10th of 10 children. His mom died when he was a baby. So it's not odd that we find him on someone else's farm trying to work as a chore boy and going and get water from the well and, you know, cleaning up after the pigs and feeding the cows and just doing things you would do that a farmer would do around the property. And so we see him come on, we see that happening, but this young kid was always fascinated with what's going on on the other side of the property. The wagons are coming in and out and yada yada. And so at least according to Jack's biography, when he was there for a couple of years and had proven himself to be a great worker, then Dan Call took him back and he introduced him to, as the book calls him, a coal black Negro. And he introduces him by saying, this is Uncle Nearest. He's the best whiskey maker I know of. Now, the reason why that's important is there were 16 distilleries in a four-mile radius. And so you had to look at it and say, well, why was his the best? What was so different? What was so unique? Well, one of the things that was so unique about it was Nearest was taking a traditional bourbon and filtering it through sugar maple charcoal. Well, your end property is going to be completely different than the beginning because of that filtration method. And so that is what he then was charged with teaching a young Jack. It sure sounds like it's Nearest's ideas. He's like the master. No, it's definitely not his idea. And I'll tell you how we know, is we see it for the first time in the 18th century in Kentucky. What we do know for sure is the way that those in West Africa purified their food and filtered their water was using charcoal. And so it is very likely that that process came in with the slaves. And so no matter where they were in the country, if they were distilling, they knew that this process could be utilized. Now, whether or not their masters chose to kind of go with it is one thing, but at least as the case for Dan Call, he definitely went with it. Wow. And so in charcoal, like you take wood, you heat it to make it charcoal, and then you run the liquid through it. But specifically sugar maple. 
Sugar maple. Mm-hmm. Does it add like a sweetness? It or? adds nothing, but it takes away everything that you do not want in it. So most of the impurities, it removes it on the way out. There's a number of things that it removes, but a lot of the bitterness that can be, but the harshness. So if you think about what they were drinking back in the day, I mean, how they got that stuff down, I don't even... Just rot gut. Oh, nasty. God, yeah. I don't even understand how they got it down. And so this process allowed for that to be smoothed out and for people to be able to actually enjoy their whiskey versus just, you know, drinking it to get drunk or to kill some kind of virus. Right. Yeah. So Nearest takes young Jack Daniel under his wing, teaches him how to make whiskey. Mm -hmm. And then how do we get, and as you said, this is just one little area and there's 16 distilleries. So they're assuming there's thousands of distilleries all over the South. What brought Jack Daniels to be you know, the iconic. One, and we know this only just by reading different advertisements and newspapers and things of that nature. Number one, the whiskey that he had was the best. That's whether you're up in Kentucky or down in Tennessee. One of the things that you will see in all the advertisements going back to the 1870s is every week, everyone, all the distributors would advertise their different whiskeys and bourbons that they were selling. Everyone would go on sale every week. There was always a discount. Never for Jack Daniel. Never. I I have never seen one of his jugs, bottles, anything on sale. And I mean, I've gone through more newspapers than I can count. Never once seen it. And do you think it's that charcoal, the getting rid of the impurities? I think that it was the process that was being utilized, yeah. Because there were so many people that were utilizing a similar recipe. So it wouldn't have been the recipe. It had to be the distinction. So there's only one distinction between Kentucky bourbon and Tennessee whiskey, other than location. And that's the Lincoln County process. That is that process of filtering through sugar maple charcoal. But how does all this turn into a business? It's a great story, but how does Fawn hear this story, decide she can turn it into a book, maybe option it into a movie, and then launch a whiskey brand? Well, that's after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. A vital character in Fawn's success story is that realtor, the one who sold Fawn the farm and is a direct descendant of Jack Daniel. Well, as Fawn was doing this research for her book, they became quite close. She says one day, out of the complete blue, if you ever decide to also honor him with a bottle, I will come out of retirement and help you to get it right. Now... For me, I don't know why a realtor coming out of retirement would have been helpful on the whiskey business, right? And so I said, yeah, you know, we're good. We're not going to move in that direction. Now, mind you, we had already trademarked every 
literally everything, but it was still for us about the story uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one is we knew how expensive it would be to actually start a whiskey company, and we knew we would not be able to afford to do it ourselves, and every investment that my husband and I have ever had has been our own money. This was going to be the first time that we'd actually have to ask others to invest money, and we weren't really interested in doing that little while later, she came back and said, you know, and she just said the same thing. I think probably around the third time we finally had a conversation about it. And I learned from her, from her own words, she says, whiskey is in my blood. It's all I've ever known. And we learned from her that she had always been a part of the family business. And when she left Jack Daniel after 31 years, she was their head of whiskey operations. So she retired and started doing real estate as just something to do, something to keep her busy. And so that was that. So she piece knew of it. how to run a distillery. She oh, absolutely. Front to back. About it. Yeah. And specifically Tennessee whiskey. Wow. But it wasn't still enough because I knew that I was going to have to be the one to do these pitch meetings in order to raise the money to do it because it would be costly, not, you know, a couple million dollars. It was going to be tens of millions of dollars. And so that was a big commitment to have to try to raise that much money. But then when I was with Nearest's family and I would interview them at the end of our time, I said, what is the one thing that you would like to see happen to honor your ancestor. And they said, we think his name should be on a bottle. And I literally left out of that meeting and called Sherry and said, if you will come out of retirement, I will raise the money. So she did. And she starts Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. And the thinking she does next, the way she turned a compelling story into a thriving brand, we can all learn something from that because it took a lot of creative thinking. She refused to do things the way everyone thought you had to do things. Let's put on a purely business hat. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible story. It's a great story. Yeah. It's literally, you feel like you're drinking history, which is part of the joy of, you know, fancier spirits and yeah. wine and, and other things. That's part I'm more a wine guy, although I do like whiskey, but, you know, I like drinking history. It's yeah, exciting. absolutely. But let's talk about the business. Yeah. Tell me why this is a business opportunity and not just an honoring of someone who deserves to be honored. Well, I think that, number one, it is a good time. However, it's also a very challenging time because it is one of the most oversaturated categories, period. Yeah. It, last weekend, my... Wife had a hard day. I went to buy her a nice whiskey, and <laughs> I went to liquor store near us, and it was so many, and yeah. I didn't know almost any of the names. It yeah. was it's kind of cool because it's not just rows and rows of Jack Daniels and Jim Beam, but right. but it's also overwhelming. Yeah, it's overwhelming, and it's, so the challenge with whiskey, with spirits in general, is the barrier to entry is so low. But there is a massive gap between the barrier of entry to success. Massive. And so I think the number is something like somewhere between 95 and 99 percent of the whiskey brands will not survive. And they'll come out and they'll have their bottles for a few years and then they will just leave. We've been in this industry only we came out in 2017. We had our first bottles in the market. We've already seen so many begin to die off. 
And that's because there are these large companies that will make your whiskey for you? Is that why the barrier is so low? Well, it's low for that end. It's low to make it yourself. So because it's not like you have to have that many barrels to begin. You can decide. I mean, I know people that start off with six barrels and you only have to get it to two years in order for it to be called a whiskey. And so you've got a... So I could literally in my garage get six barrels. Absolutely. And that's what has happened. So you have these folks that have done it in their garage or really, you know, rented out some kind of space, but a very small amount of space. They have a pot still and they will produce a tiny amount, but they don't necessarily think it through. So I think the barrier to entry is very low, but being able to succeed in this business is very difficult, mostly because, number one, the majority of the marketplace, like everywhere else, is big guys. And these are big guys that are worth $25 billion plus, right? Who are going to spill more whiskey in an hour than you'll, you'll ever make. make. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you have that as all of the distributors have to really cater to these big guys. So then And then ha- the distributors are a choke point too, right? Because oh, of absolutely. the weird nature of alcohol post-prohibition that each state has its own idiosyncratic rules. And then yep. you have these distributors whose expertise is all those weird rules, but it means on your own, you essentially can't just start selling in state oh, no. after state yeah. after state. It's a three-tier system. Right. So we are the supplier, we're the maker and we're the supplier. Then you have the distributor that is charged with actually getting your product to the stores or to the bars or wherever else. And then you have that buyer on the other side of it. So this you've the got retail these, store. the retail stores or the bars, the restaurants, the hotels. You have those three, right? And for us to get to the bar, the restaurant, we have to have the distributor in the middle. Absolutely. You cannot ship, you cannot, you've got to go through a distributor. Well, the distributors are beholden to the big guys. And so in order to. And there's fewer of them, as I understand it. There used to be hundreds of them, and now there's a small handful that control much of the business. I think it's fair to, it's like legal corruption. It's it's not illegal, (laughs) but it's. When the law says this category of business has monopoly power or oligopoly power over this type of commerce, you're just going to see what economists call economic rents. You're going to see them swallowing up profits that without having to provide efficiency or better service or anything. I'm sure some of them are better than others. Some of them might be really good. I have no idea. But it's a terrible perversion of how capitalism is supposed to work to have these government-mandated oligopolies. You know, I remember a friend of mine, when someone said, how do you know if there's an oligopoly or a monopoly? And he said, do you get really mad at the people? (laughs) So you think of like (laughs) cell phone carriers, cable companies, the people who you're like, ah. Right. Because they don't have to actually do anything to keep your business. Right. You don't have another choice. Right. You really do only have a handful that pretty much run this country. I mean, you have a few small ones. But for us, for instance, we because we expanded very quickly. So in the whiskey business in general or spirits business, you're really trying to just get one distributor in that first year in your home state, wherever you are. And then if you can get into four states within, call it, four to five years, your neighboring states, you're doing really, really well. If you can get into 10, you're doing phenomenal. Well, we launched in July of 2017, and we're in 48 states. So the way that we did that was piecing together the best distributors in each of the states, but not allowing any to take us national. 
So we, for one, we may have like our largest distributor. I think we have, we're in maybe 20 states with this particular distributor, but everywhere else we're in maybe two, three, up to seven states. So you're sort of forcing competition among the distributors. We're up to, last count, I think it was 14. We're up to 14. And that doesn't include our international distributors. And there are some markets internationally where we have three different distributors in one marketplace. And But a part of that, of doing that, was making sure that there could not be a catch and kill where they will take on a new brand because it will compete with one of their other big brands and they will bring them in, they'll sign them to a distribution contract and they'll sit them in the warehouse. No one has that monopoly power Nobody over Nobody has you. that power over our brand. This is the kind of rule-bending thinking Fawn is so good at. She refuses to do things the way everyone assumes you have to. And you know what they say about assuming? More after the break. You know, it's funny, this show is called The Passion Economy, and one of the ideas is that a lot of the forces that can terrify us are actually also an opportunity to unlock your passion. Absolutely. And, that, and we constantly have people on who have some weird idiosyncratic thing that they produce or do, and the internet and the modern economy allows them to reach their fans all over the world, all over the country, fairly frictionlessly. Yeah. But... One of the constraints on the ability to have a real passion business is the kinds of frictions you're describing, that when there's some barrier, some artificial barrier that prevents you from just, you know, so if you were making, you know, fancy watches or really cool belts, you could just have a retail website or a retail website and a wholesale website sure. and just serve people all over the earth. And yeah. you could use FedEx or XPO Logistics or whoever to just get your product to whoever in the world wants it. Yeah. And that middle step is a huge friction that makes it much, much harder. Like, I feel like anyone on earth who wants your whiskey yeah. should be able to get it. Yeah. Now, you've obviously mastered that, or at least tamed it to some degree, but <laughs> it sounds like an awful lot of people don't. You have a lot of people that have put so much money and so much work into it, but I think just the way that I'm wired is what other people see as barriers I look at as an opportunity. So I was never disheartened by the distributor situation in the U.S. I looked at it and said, if we create enough buzz about our brand, if we create enough people asking for this brand, if there are enough people telling this story, then we can piece together distributor network. It won't look like anything that anybody else has done, but we don't need it to look like anything anyone else has done. Right. And also, this is where another big idea that we talk about in the passion economy is the potency of an authentically powerful story, yes. which you clearly have. But so do a lot of other businesses I talk to where if the story is truly authentic and if there's some consumer base out there who is moved by that story and craves the product, and as you just said, it can co overcome a lot of those barriers yeah. because at the end of the day, when people hear this, first of all, it's the kind of story that journalists just, I mean, I know as a journalist, we yeah. just love. So obviously you're in The Times and CBS Sunday Morning. You even got to be on the Passion Economy podcast. I thank you very much. And then I think when people hear it, 
of course they want to then taste the whiskey. And yeah. it's like you're able to taste history. You're able to actually feel like you're being taken. You know, yeah. It's pretty nice when you get to both drink whiskey and feel like you're helping slightly repair the fabric of America. Like yeah. that, that's and it's exactly, it's exactly what it is. But I think that for a lot of people, they're very passionate and they will dive into it. But I see a lot of passionate entrepreneurs that simply have not put the right people around them. They have built a team of yes people versus building a team of those who will truly challenge them. Because if they will challenge them, then they will really challenge the status quo in general and really push beyond boundaries. But then also being a leader that anytime my team comes to me and says, listen, this has never been done in the industry. It can't be done. And I can tell you, my team never comes to me with that anymore. But in the beginning, they did. They now know me well enough to know that I don't believe that anything is impossible and I don't believe in no's. It just means that we haven't asked the right question and we've not gone about it the right way to get the yes. But there is always a yes to be had. Although it, I think your approach, it's it's a tricky balance that you seem to have mastered. Because on the one hand, like if I met you three years ago before you started the brand and I was like, so you have no whiskey experience. Yeah. You don't know how whiskey really <laughs> is made. You've maybe read a couple articles about right. alcohol distribution, but you don't really know it in your guts. Yeah. You have no contacts other than you've just met a bunch of people. Sure. You know, all of that, yeah. those are both weaknesses, but they also are strengths because... The flip side is the person who is the lifelong vet in the industry just understands how the industry works. They're mm -hmm. built around the existing industry. They're not going to see those opportunities. Right. They're going to just say, oh, no, it doesn't work that way. You can't have 14 distributors. That right. just doesn't happen. But knowing how to balance when to step back and say, mm -hmm. you know what, you're the expert. Yep. And knowing when to step in and say, you know what, you're the expert, but I'm seeing something because I'm not an expert that you're not seeing. Absolutely. And it is a balance. But it is, I think that you gain that trust with your team by listening to their expertise on a very regular basis, allowing them to push back and to give their argument and be very passionate about their argument and their belief. But you also have to believe enough in what you're doing and your brand and your product or whatever else it is to say, Yes, this is the way it's always been done, and I respect that. However, this is why we are going to do it differently. We may fail at this, but this is why we need to try, because if we don't try, then we already know the outcome because it's been that way for the last 25, 30 years. So for us, we've literally done nothing according to this industry. Literally, the way we've gone about everything from day one has been the opposite of what everyone in this industry told us to do. And it's one of the first things when I was hiring the different people to run different areas was to say, listen, I need you to ignore everything that anyone is going to tell you if they're telling you it can't be done. I feel like a lot of the people I've met who specifically have beverage companies or food companies, CPG, consumer packaged good companies, there seem to be two strategies. One strategy is building a sustaining business. The other is spend as much as you can on marketing, grab a little bit of market share, and hope that some giant company buys you out. Yeah. Which one are you? Definitely the former. The former? So we are in the middle of building out about a $50 million distillery. And we are building every single bit of this brand. Every marketing campaign is built 
to be here 200 years from now. That is my only focus. So it's interesting because people in the beginning, they would ask me, well, where do you see this in the next five years? And it took me a while to realize that everyone expected us to flip this business. And so they were really asking, are you going to sell it? That was really the question. And it took me a while to realize that I actually don't look at the next five years except for purposes of forecasting. I am looking at the next 200 years and what ensures that these bottles are still on the shelves 200 years from now. So the decisions that I make are quite different than the decisions that others might make if they are looking to sort of build to flip. Well, building a $50 million distillery would be a terrible idea if somebody who has billion-dollar distilleries is going to buy you in a few years. Absolutely. It's just going to mess up the valuation. Makes no sense whatsoever. Right. But when you are doing it to build a brand to outlive you, makes all the sense in the world. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. <laughs> 